Welcome to Mysteries and Meatballs, Episode 3, The Happy Face Killer. I'm your host, Tiffany, and with me today is my co-writer and co-host, Stephanie. Hey, everyone. This episode is a great one. Glad to be here to help tell this story. Disclaimer, this episode of Mysteries and Meatballs contains graphic details that may be offensive to some listeners. As in all murders, families were affected and we don't take this lightly. Our hearts go out to all those involved. Throughout the 90s, there were crime stories that rocked the world. Selena, Tupac, and Biggie were all murdered during this decade. I remember when Tupac was murdered. It was so crazy. I guess it was compared to when Elvis died. He was such a legend that there are conspiracy theories about him still being alive. There were also killings that gripped and shocked the nation, like the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey and Nicole Brown Simpson. I remember both of those crimes unfolding. It was scary to think that poor Jean Benet could be murdered in her own home right under the noses of her family. This story spooked me. It frightened me. I too remember how scary that was, and to think that to this day they really haven't solved the case. Many speculations, but no conclusions. And I'm sure that we all remember the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and the famous OJ trial. Right? So messed up. Anyone who has watched a whodunit could tell that this case definitely let America down by letting him off. I totally agree. This is a true crime story that took place in the 1990s across several states with a few crazy twists and turns. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born April 6, 1955 in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Now, Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada is located just east of Vancouver off the Trans-Canada Highway, historically an agriculture community. Population in 2016 was 83,790 according to the United Nations. Keith Jesperson's childhood was filled with violence and abuse. During interviews with his father, he admits to beating Jesperson repeatedly throughout his childhood. He describes it as a normal upbringing. He raised his son the way he was raised and told the interviewer. Jesperson's father also told of how not only did he beat his son, but he had also electrocuted him as punishment on occasion. It was sickening to read how the father was casual about these things and viewed them as normal. I understand that back then they used switch they used to use switches with their kids and all, but seriously, to think that it's okay to electrocute your child as punishment is inhumane and sick. Just sick. I have to agree. I've taken several psychology classes and this story seems to prove that both nature, the genes and traits that we pass down biologically, generation after generation, as well as nurture or our environment, including where we're raised, how we're raised learning by seeing and being surrounded affects the outcome of who we become and how we live among society. Starting at a young age, Jesper enjoyed barbaric and heinous things. His father admits to condoning and even encouraging at times the capturing, torturing, and brutal killing of animals. Growing up, Jesperson was surrounded by abuse and a sinister way of life. In many serial cases that I have heard and read about, this seems to be a common trait amongst them, including the famous Jeffrey Dahmer. In interviews, the mother told stories of young Dahmer killing small animals as a child. Definitely a sign that maybe your child needs help. Not a normal in the slightest bit. 
At the age of 12, Keith Jesperson moved with his family to Selah, Washington. Selah, Washington is a city in Yakima County, Washington. According to the 2010 census, it had a population of 7,147, just to give you an idea of the city that we're talking about. Not very big at all. In fact, it's a small agriculture city in the south central Washington, just east of the Cascade Mountain Range. It's located just north of downtown Yakima, a rather charming community surrounded by outdoor adventure. By this time, Jesperson had grown into an outwardly violent child. There were two incidents that took place where other boys were injured. In one incident, Jasper was angry and he tried to drown another boy by holding his head under the water. He also beat a classmate to the point of unconsciousness. This is horrible. Nowadays, if this was to happen, police would be called and that boy have, would have went to juvenile hall and been charged with a crime. Back then, they let parents handle most things. Crazy to think, though, that his father was incur- encouraging the abuse of animals. So, at this time, that his dad was probably praising him, giving him that attaboy for his violent and harmful behavior. Jesperson began to feel powerful. Classmates teased him and called him Baby Huey. According to a classmate, Janine Better, class of 73, Selah High, he was a loner in high school. He never had a girlfriend. He tried hard to fit in, Janine remembers. He would show up to parties alone and make a grand entrance. Well, everyone noticed him because he was so big. He stood six foot, eight inches tall and weighed approximately 240 pounds. In the yearbook, the students would write a song next to their picture. Janine, his classmate, still has the yearbook where Keith wrote, Born to be Wild, next to his picture. In spite of his awkwardness, he did graduate high school. As a young adult, things seemed different. In 1975, at the age of 20, he married a lady by the name of Rose. Rose and Jesperson would have three children together. In order to support his young family, Jesperson became a long-haul truck driver. One thing that I found odd when researching the story is that despite the details of Jesperson being an awkward and outwardly violent loner in high school, people who knew Jesperson as an adult described him as being likable. It was polar opposite, as if they were describing two different people. Right? I remember watching the documentary on the Discovery Channel about this story. And all the friends that they interviewed that were friends of his and Rose's when they were married said that they seemed like a normal couple. In January of 1990, that would all change. After accusing Jesperson of cheating, his wife Rose had left him. Not long after that, Jesperson's new girlfriend would dump him leaving him feeling angry, very angry, with women in general. On January 21st, 1990, as Jesperson was traveling through Portland, Oregon, he stopped at a small bar named B&I Tavern. While at this tavern, Jesperson met a young woman by the name of Tanya Bennett. On January 22nd, 1990, a college student was out taking a drive to clear his head after taking a final exam in one of his classes. He stopped his car in a wooded area and got out to take a walk and breathe in some fresh air when he found a dead body. It was a woman. She still had a rope tied around the neck of her lifeless body. Her pants and underwear were down around her ankles. Her shirt pulled above her bare breast. 
She was badly bruised and beaten. A pair of headphones were found near the body. At a closer look, detectives noticed that the button fly of her Levi's had been cut out and removed, now missing. There was also one partial hair found on her stomach. The woman's purse was not located at the scene or any identification. The way she was found, the way her clothes were, looks like a sexual assault. The missing button fly? Now this piece of material was not just ripped away, but carefully cut out. It was not found at the scene. The killer must have taken it for some reason. I'm thinking that he took it for one of two reasons. Because there was possible fingerprints on the buttons, or maybe as a trophy. Meanwhile, Loretta Bennett had called police and told police that she feared her 23-year-old daughter was missing. She was, quote, slow, as her mother said, and she hadn't seen her in a few days. Her mom told police that she had no driver's license, rode the bus everywhere, and always carried a Walkman everywhere she went. Tanya Bennett's sister would recognize the clothes of the victims to be that of her sisters. Loretta Bennett would soon identify the body found in the woods as her missing daughter, 23-year-old Tanya Bennett. The investigation wasn't going anywhere. Law enforcement had no leads. They decided to take a closer look at the college boy who found her. His story checked out and records proved that he was in class that morning and he had a strong alibi. With no motive, he was cleared as a suspect. The detectives retraced Tanya's steps. The bartender at B&I Tavern remembered seeing Tanya at the bar that night of January 19, 1990. She was playing pool with two gentlemen. The waitress said, I turned around to make a drink and then noticed she was gone, but the two gentlemen she was playing pool with were still here. And that was it. Without a trace, it seemed that Tanya Bennett went missing from that tavern before being found murdered. The investigation was just at a halt. They had no new clues, no clues at all. A few weeks pass and a woman calls in with a tip. This woman was 58-year-old Laverne Pavlinik. She stated that she overheard a man in a bar talking about murdering a girl. Investigators decided to pay this lady a visit. Investigators talk about their impression of Laverne when arriving to her home to talk to her in person during a documentary on Discovery titled Unusual Suspects, Happy Face Killer. They state that she was a kind older lady, very sweet and calm, very likable. She made us coffee and she started telling a different story, they said. A different story indeed. Check this out. While investigators sat around Laverne's kitchen table drinking coffee, she started telling them a different story. See, when Laverne first called police, she stated that she had overheard a man in the bar. Now she is claiming that the man she overheard was a man that she knew, a man she knew well. It was her boyfriend, her much younger boyfriend, John Sznofsky, who was only 39. Sznofsky had a reputation to be a blackout drunk who liked to use Laverne as a punching bag. The police had nothing to arrest him on. All they had was Laverne's vague story. Unsatisfied with no arrest, one week later, Laverne called investigators again with yet another story. Now the story is that Laverne Pavlinuk 
claimed that she picked up John Sosnowski from a truck stop where John told her that he had killed a woman. He said he choked her, put her body in a friend's car, and that his friend disposed of the body in the Columbia woods near the gorge. This story gave police enough information to get a search warrant for Laverne and John's residence. The search only turned up some rope in the garage and a small piece of paper that read, T. Bennett, good piece. The authorities were hoping to find more evidence, but just didn't find it. No arrests were made. Once again, all the detectives had was this story, the third story from Laverne. When reading about this note that was found at the house, T. Bennett, good piece, it was described several different ways. Several sources say that it read T. Bennett, good piece, and several sources say it read Tanya Bennett, good piece, where Tanya was spelt wrong. Either way, the note was found at the residence. That's so creepy. The next day after the authorities had searched John and Laverne's home, Laverne makes another call to detectives. This time, she states that she found a purse in the trunk of her car. This purse, she claimed, did not belong to her. And inside the purse, she found something odd, very odd, a cut-out button fly from a pair of Levi's. The detectives believe that this is it. This could be their huge break in the case. The information about the button fly being missing from Tanya Bennett's Levi's was never released to the public. Only they and the killer would know this. This woman is crazy. Strange how she knows everything about the case, but she keeps changing her story. Usually when people change their story time and time again, they are lying. But why would she keep lying about something so serious? John Sosnowski claimed that he had never met Tanya Bennett, that he had never had sex with her, and that he had nothing to do with her murder. He agreed to take a polygraph test. The partial hair was compared to one of Sosnowski's. The hair was a match, and John, he failed his polygraph test. He failed his polygraph test after he swears he had never met Tanya Bennett. After a while, though, John starts to believe that perhaps Laverne knows more than he does. He knows that many times he has blacked out drunk with no memory or recollection of what had happened while he was that drunk. I'm not sure that you could kill someone and not remember. You would have to be really, really drunk and then still, how could you not remember taking someone's life away? It's sad when you're so drunk all the time that you can't even trust your own memory. At this point, detectives figure they have solved this crime. John Sosnowski killed Tanya Bennett. Case closed. They were wrong. All of a sudden, new evidence or a lack of evidence turned up. Tanya Bennett's mother could not identify the purse that Laverne claimed to have found in her trunk. That purse did not belong to Tanya. The forensic results came back on the button fly that was inside the purse, and it is not a match to the Levi's that Tanya was wearing either. The major evidence in this case turned out to be fake. Now all they have is the story, or stories, that Laverne has told detectives. After finding out that the evidence was not true evidence per se, the detectives tell Laverne 
that the genes did not match those of Tanya Bennett. Laverne then admits to planting the button fly and the purse in her trunk in hopes that John would get caught. She admits to placing fake evidence in her own car in hopes that they would arrest her boyfriend. This is getting kind of silly. Did he do it or did he not? Why would she go through such lengths if he wasn't guilty? The very next day, Laverne calls detectives again and has them come over. When detectives arrive to Laverne's house, Laverne says, quote, correction time, end quote, and changes her story yet again. This lady is batshit crazy. Correction time? What is that? She told detectives that she knew that John had done it because she was there. She and John picked up Tanya Bennett from a truck stop 20 miles from the tavern where she was last seen. They drove her to the Vista House on the Columbia Gorge. John got Tanya out of the car and took her down to the stone steps. Laverne held the rope around Tanya's neck while John raped and beat her, she claimed. I must have held the rope too tight, Laverne stated. Laverne kept telling the detectives that she felt responsible and that she didn't mean to kill her. This sweet little old lady really would and could do this? This really doesn't make any sense. She definitely didn't come across as a type of woman who would participate in such heinous crimes. Now, the detectives have heard so many stories from Laverne that they need proof she is telling the truth. They demand that Laverne take them to where her and her boyfriend dumped the body. The detectives drove her there. Laverne asked them to stop the car and turn around, then asked them to stop the car again. Laverne got out and showed detectives. Right there, she said. She was within 10 feet of where the body was actually found. Detectives took a closer look at the stairwell where Laverne had claimed John had beaten Tanya and they found blood. Before this stone stairwell had never been mentioned. Well, still skeptical of Laverne since she had changed her story so many times and even admitted to planting fake evidence, detectives needed more reassurance. So they asked Laverne to tell her daughter what had happened. Detectives thought for sure she would not confess to her daughter if it was another lie. So they called Laverne's daughter down to the station and recorded the mother confessing the same story, the most recent story that Laverne had told the detectives earlier. They thought that she would never want her own daughter to think that she was part of this murder if she really wasn't part of it. The detectives thought this would be a sure way to know that Laverne was telling the truth. Laverne Pavlinek and John Sosnowski were both arrested and charged with the murder of Tanya Bennett. John maintained his innocence, but because he's a blackout drunk, he begins to doubt himself. John doesn't want to risk the death penalty, so he takes a plea deal. He pled guilty to a crime he had no memory of whatsoever. I couldn't imagine how he must have felt sitting in prison for something that his girlfriend claimed that he did, and yet he isn't sure either way if he did or he didn't. 
Laverne, on the other hand, takes the stand to testify at her own trial. While on the stand, she testifies that she and John are both innocent. She testifies that she lied about everything and that she framed John to get out of their abusive relationship. Can you believe that? No, this is crazy. I know. What next? Meanwhile, two confessions were written in bathroom stalls at different rest stops. One was found in Montana and one in Oregon. The confessions read, quote, I killed Tanya Bennett on January 21st, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. Yes, I am sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I am free. Signed, with a happy face. This was before the internet, so the killer couldn't just post it on social media that he had killed Tanya Bennett. But these messages left in several parts of the country was his way of demanding credit. Or was it? After all, he didn't sign his name. Just a happy face. So wait a minute. You mean to tell me that Laverne and John were already on trial and they found these confessions? Well, if you want to know what happens next, you must tune in for episode four, The Happy Face Killer, part two. Ciao!